When the particulars of this conversation were repeated by Miss Dashwood to her sister, as they very soon were, the effect on her was not entirely such as the former had hoped to see. Not that Marianne appeared to dis... I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 32 to 36 of Sense and Sensibility. And as usual, we're going to start with 100-word summaries of the chapters. You go first, because mine is dreadful. (laughs) Okay. So, what I had is... The Steeles arrive in London, and so do John and Fanny. John tells Eleanor she should try for Colonel Brandon, and that Mrs Ferrers wants Edward to marry Miss Morton. At a dinner given by John and Fanny, Mrs Ferrers and Fanny are quite rude to Eleanor and favour Lucy. The next day, while Lucy is calling on Eleanor, Edward walks in, which is awkward for all three. At a musical party, Eleanor is talked at by Robert Ferrers, whom she had earlier seen buying a toothpick case. To avoid having Eleanor and Marianne visit... Fanny invites the Steeles to stay. So that's my 100-word summary. When Willoughby's marriage is announced, the Middleton Jennings circle are determined to cut him dead, but their attention is soon focused on the new arrivals in London, the Dashwood and Ferris families and the Miss Steeles, who were soon invited to stay with the Middletons, resulting in an embarrassing encounter between Edward, Eleanor and Lucy. The Dashwood girls observe a conceited young man in a jeweller's shop and also encounter their brother John, who gives a long account of his finances and decides Colonel Brandon is a possible suitor for Eleanor. Social occasions between the two families multiply, leading to the discovery that the conceited young man is Edward's younger brother, Robert. Hmm. I basically just itemised some facts. You've given more context, I think. This is another sort of transitional set of chapters. So we've just finished the big plot piece about Willoughby and then Colonel Brandon's story. And we're going to be leading into the other big important plot event of Edward and Lucy's engagement becoming public. But these five chapters just sit in between them. The focus has pretty much shifted off Marianne and onto Eleanor. But even though they're transitional, I think these have some of the best comic scenes in the book i think it's because in these scenes we've got all of the major players in london and in particular we've got all of the comic characters in london so there are such funny dialogue scenes what i did was i actually itemized all the scenes that happen and it's this mix of scenes like the visit to gray's where there's no dialogue at all it's just descriptive but it still paints this picture of this unknown young man oh yeah that one yeah. Um, and then you've got the wonderful dialogue scene between john and eleanor yeah. then you've got the dinner party scene which is this mix of dialogue when they're being rude to eleanor but also descriptive when they're comparing the heights of the children and then the wonderful wonderful piece with robert ferrers where when i looked at that closely i remembered that as a dialogue scene but yeah. it's not it's a monologue scene <laughs> it is just robert ferrers talking and talking and it's and talking so... about cottages that have five or six reception rooms and it's just so funny but along with all these funny scenes you've also got that intensely awkward scene between Eleanor and Lucy and Edward but again that is a scene that started off with dialogue between Eleanor and Lucy but once Edward walks into the room suddenly it's just descriptive again it's a funny mix of scenes but at the same time you kind of come away thinking this wasn't just transitional this was really really enjoyable and really character revealing 
Well, my particular take on that was what I became aware of as soon as we said goodbye to Colonel Brandon. I heaved a sigh of relief. We're (laughs) getting away from Marianne. We're getting into the stuff I like, the comedy. Yes. And then what we've got is we have a Marianne plot and an Eleanor plot. Yeah. And they are completely different plots. Yes. I mean, the Marianne plot, it could be something like Romeo and Juliet, and you could see, well, it doesn't in fact, but you think it's going to end up with her dying. Mm. It's also the Lily Maid Elaine and Lancelot. I don't know enough 18th century fiction, so I was sort of looking for outlines of plots. And it's the plot of Scots, the Bride of Lammermoor, which mm-hmm. then turned into a major opera, Lucia de Lammermoor, mm-hmm. where it's a girl, she's in love with this man, she thinks he's betrayed her and she dies. And what they all seem to be about, there was this very famous few lines from a poem by Alexander Pope, which say, Is it in heaven a crime to love too well, to bear too tender or too firm a heart? To act a lover's or a Roman's part. It's called Elegy to the Memory of an Unfortunate Lady about someone who killed herself. But that's where the Marianne plot is focusing in on. And then we suddenly move across and we've moved into romantic comedy. I think it's a special kind of romantic comedy though. It, it's not it's, it's a, not romantic comedy like Much Ado About Nothing where it's all about the fun and games. No, Until well, something no, goes wrong. It's, it's, it's the kind of bittersweet romantic comedy. It's romantic comedy with an underlying sadness. I don't know if we're going to talk about this. It's the Twelfth Night, Patience on a Monument. Yes. Romantic comedy. So oh, got... We are absolutely going to talk about that when we get to talking about Eleanor because that was the whole basis of my university essay. Yes. I suppose, and I think particularly in these scenes, even though Eleanor is sad underneath, you've got her having her quiet observations to herself of how badly everyone else is behaving. Yes, and almost in an Elizabeth Bennet way, finding some of it funny. Yes. And so what you've got is these two completely parallel and intertwined, and then somehow also you've got another plot that keeps poking up its head, and that's this moral story about (laughs) sense and sensibility, Mm. and which is better. Mm. But then that is tied with these two plots. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got these two absolutely classic plots. Mm. But at some point, she somehow slams the two of them into what could be a Maria Edgeworth moral Mm. tales, that sort of thing. Mm. So you've got this third plot. That's like the umbrella plot. I think it's the plot that wrecks the book. (laughs) (laughs) That if she hadn't had that plot, she might have done a better job. Like I said, I don't see that as a separate plot. I see that as either the umbrella theme or the underlying structure or a comparison that comes through, which is why she set up these two separate plots. But I don't see that as a third plot. Well, I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to say is you've got these two elegant classic plots and then bustling in on it comes the moral story plot. You know, like Santa Claus coming, you were good and you got this, you were bad and you got that. (laughs) And the other thing, the thing that's really the problem with that moral plot is there is no cause and effect. There is no way Marianne could have behaved differently that would have made Willoughby true to her. And Eleanor's sort of impeccable behaviour could not have made Lucy Steele go off with Robert Ferris. Absolutely no cause and effect. This Mm. one behaves well, this one behaves badly. 
There's and no... Santa Claus says, right, you can have Edward. No, you can't have... You've got to marry Colonel Brandon. <laughs> True, there's no cause and effect between the behaviour and the real-world events. So the comparison that is still made by Marianne later on is that she didn't behave as Eleanor did and she should have, and maybe maybe that would have helped her emotionally cope with it better. But as you said, there's no cause and effect with her not marrying Willoughby and Eleanor, yes, marrying Edward. We've talked overarching stuff, but let's talk about a couple of key scenes in it. Like I said, there's these, all these scenes, some are dialogue, some are down there, so wonderful. Wonderful stuff um, in them. But some I particularly want to talk about. Yes. Well, first, briefly, just talking about that Eleanor has gone to Grey's to negotiate the exchange of some jewellery for her mother. Yes. Now, when I read that, I thought, oh, I'd forgotten that. This is one of those tiny, tiny hints that, not that they're not as well off as before, because we knew that, but maybe they are struggling a bit. But then the footnotes in my Cambridge edition said that's certainly one interpretation, but it's also possible that... People often just had the settings changed. And it does say negotiate for the exchange. It doesn't say sell. So yes. people did sell jewellery discreetly at Grey's, but they also went to Grey's just to get the setting changed. And the novel is perhaps deliberately well, obscure on that obscure. point. But, of course, that is where she first sees Robert Ferrers. There was a couple of other things I did want to say about that scene. One is that it has one of those little bits in Jane Austen that... We always say the characters are real, everything's universal, even though it's in a different setting, things and behaviours we recognise. And obviously in a big sense that's true, but this also has just one of those little tiny moments that you think, oh, that is so, doesn't everyone do that? Yeah. When it says, one gentleman only was standing there. <laughs> and it is probable that Eleanor was not without hope of exciting his politeness to a quicker dispatch. Because, yeah. you know, haven't we all at some stage, if there's a queue, we've kind of stood yeah. there and just hoped well, that the person well, well, will notice us and be quicker. <laughs> yes, and if there are two or three queues... Picking you the think, shortest. Yeah. You think, who looks likeliest to get through most quickly? Yeah. Oh, there's a young gentleman. Oh, well, he's sure to be polite yeah. to us. And, yeah. of course, it's Robert yeah. Ferris. Yes. <laughs> And again, even though this scene has no dialogue, the narrative is so, so funny when it yes. talks about after examining and debating for a quarter of an hour over every toothpick case in the shop were finally arranged by his own inventive fantasy. He had no leisure to bestow any other attention on the two ladies. And then even funnier, the gentleman having named the last day on which his existence could be continued without the possession of the toothpick case. Yes. <laughs> so funny. Yes. So this is a scene where Robert is introduced, but not by name, and we get Eleanor's maybe slightly amused, but also quite contemptuous view of him having strong, natural, sterling insignificance <laughs> yes. adorned in the first style of fashion. And yeah. then, of course, later when they meet him, and <laughs> it is just that scene with him and Eleanor where he talks about cottages and everything. It is so funny. And I'm sure... And it's so character-revealing and all that. Of course, the other really funny scene that is conversation, not monologue, is the one between Eleanor and John where he talks and talks about how poor he is. Yes. <laughs> well, again, from my point of view, what comes forward, it's more of this picture of John as so dumb and so good-hearted. I but, think so good-hearted is an exaggeration. But so sure he's good-hearted. Yes, his yeah. perception of himself is of good-hearted. And he so much wants Colonel Brandon mm. to do that. He so much wants Mrs Jennings to leave her money to yeah. them. And he hasn't analysed his own motives, which the author points out quite clearly are, because that means 
he doesn't need to feel guilty about not having done anything. Yes, yes. I suppose the other thing I wanted to say a little bit, the whole question of John and the enclosures. Yeah. And when I read it, I thought, oh, well, perhaps Jane Austen is being a bit critical of him here. Perhaps she thought enclosing the commons was a bad thing. Which, of course, today, perception is, yes, of course it was a bad thing. Yeah, but then it was done by an awful lot of people. And then the second thing, anyway, if she is critical of him for enclosing the common, then she must also be critical of him for buying up this particular farm Mm. that comes next to his property. And why would she disapprove that? Unless there's something about dispossessing sturdy yeoman farmers or something. But there's nothing. I think she Mm. is criticising John for doing all this and saying, and therefore I'm so poor, I have... All this expense I have to go to. John is a figure of fun in this. Pretty subtle one. No, he is funny because he is saying he's poor and he's saying he's doing all this. And there are some pointed authorial comments about him feeling that he doesn't need to buy earrings for his sisters and all that sort of thing. So he is just so oblivious to anything outside the him and Fanny and little Harry situation. but he thinks... They should have Marianne and Ellen to stay. And Fanny is desperate. <laughs> As I think we said, Fanny is, Fanny very, is Fanny cold is and vicious. Cold yeah. and vicious and very self-aware. John is completely under Fanny's thumb. He's really, really oblivious yes. to what is actually happening. Well, he, he does have these good impulses that are sort of jumped on by Fanny. Yeah. Well, the having to buy his sister's earrings, that wasn't jumped on by Fanny. It actually says he had just compunction enough for having done nothing for his sisters himself to be exceedingly anxious that everybody else should do a great deal. Yes, which is why he wants yeah. He's quite sure Mrs Jennings has raised expectations. Yeah. I had one more thing about John that I thought was a fascinating insight into his character which is that he puts an actual monetary figure on Marianne's looks. He's not just saying she would have married well, but now she's yes. lost her bloom, she probably won't. He actually says, I question whether Marianne now will marry a man worth more than five or six hundred a year at the utmost. It's not like Mrs. Bennett saying, oh, Jane, I knew you with your beauty, you would marry someone of wealth. This is a dollar value. Yeah, well, sorry, sorry, it's a he, pound value. Well, well, as though it's one of these things he's quite good at. Yeah. He goes and looks at all the girls at the ball, all... She, um, she could easily pick up someone yeah. with 5,000. No, not hope. Well, not hope. if you're Oscar Wilde, you'd say that makes him a cynic because he knows the, <laughs> the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well, yeah. We haven't talked about the Eleanor, Lucy and Edward scene. Actually, I didn't find that particularly interesting. I suppose one of the reasons I did find it interesting is because it is one scene that in the TV and film adaptations, it's always there. All um, oh, right. But... A couple of things that struck me. First, which I may have said earlier, when it's Eleanor and Lucy, we get all this dialogue, this continuation of that fencing match they they were having at the start. But then when Edward walks in, suddenly it shifts to no dialogue, just according to what happened. It is funny. Like, you you feel for Eleanor, but at the same time, um, I think you're meant to admire her for shouldering the conversation and everything, and it is funny. And then you have Marianne comes in, and suddenly there's dialogue again, all from Marianne. And again, it's so funny because you have this, everyone knows something different except Marianne who knows nothing. (laughs) She's increasing the awkwardness for everyone, but she's just so... Well, she's so loving. Yeah, I often find Marianne profoundly irritating, but I do think she is so genuine and affectionate in this scene. It's really hard. You kind of laugh at her for being unaware and you sort of cringe at some of the things she says, but 
You kind of have to love her for saying them. Well, yes, she's just... She's so genuine. And then, of course, it finishes with Edward leaving, having, I think, stayed less than the obligatory 15 minutes for a call. Yes. And, you know, Marianne saying quietly that Lucy won't stay. But then it says, Lucy, who would have outstayed him had his visit lasted two hours, <laughs> soon afterwards went away. Yes. It's possibly the most emotional scene in these chapters, but it's also funny. Yes, yes. <laughs> And there was one other thing that struck me in these chapters, which is I was thinking back to the Helena Kelly book where she says that Sense and Sensibility is a criticism of primogeniture. And I was thinking, I don't think it is. I think what it's a criticism of is lack of family feeling because old Mr. Dashwood was leaving his money to anyone he chose Younger Mr. Dashwood and Mrs. Dashwood and the girls, they... Well, they give so much. Yes. When she makes this point that they had devoted years to making him comfortable. Yeah. And yes. he basically doesn't completely cut them out. Obviously, they still have the life interest, but he just ignores that to leave the money to the son. And similarly, you have, in these chapters in particular we've been looking at, there's such a big deal made about John and Fanny, but he in particular, there's all this emphasis on him not doing anything for his family. Yes. So I think that is what she's critiquing because and then also later on with Mrs. Ferrers, she's angry with Edward, so she completely makes over property to Robert. My feeling is she's not even questioning primogeniture well, as isn't. a concept. No. She's simply saying when you inherit the money, you have an obligation to, to, to look right. after you. I'm not even sure it's kind of thought of as obligation. It's just you make sure the other part of the family isn't in want. Well, it's back to, from the catechism, doing your duty in the state of life to which it has pleased God to place you. If you have been placed by God as the inheritor of the family money, part of your doing your duty is looking after all the people from the family who didn't inherit the family money. And equally, in the case of old Mr Dashwood, when you are planning what will happen with the family money after your death, maybe think about the people who have been looking after you for the past 10 years and don't bypass them so much. Yes. Give it to them, trust in them to do the right thing so that little Harry will get it eventually. Someone will be good to yeah. him, yeah. So I guess I just feel that in this regard... I can't remember if we've talked about it before. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. But her concept of Jane Austen being radical, for the most part, I don't see Jane Austen being radical in terms of criticising the social structure. She is maybe radical a little bit at an individual level where she actually celebrates these people like Elizabeth who, within the social structure, are completely themselves. Yes. And they're not just doing what is expected, which in her yes. case is doing what your mother says and marrying Mr Collins, yes. she will hold out for what is right for her. So at that individual level, she's maybe a bit radical, but at least in this instance, and maybe we'll talk about it in other books, there's a lot of criticism of people not looking after their family. She's criticising people who do not stick by what you can see as the overarching good sense of the way society is organised. Yeah. The only only radical thing I can see in Jane Austen is she sort of goes along with the blue stockings in women should be educated. Mm. Women have got brains. Women should be educated. Yep. Not they should earn their living. That, as far as I can see, is the only thing you could see as sort of radical. Mm. I think that's pretty much everything I had on these chapters. So 
Did you have a favourite sentence? Oh, yes. Well, I think we both got one that's a favourite sentence. I've actually got a page and a half of possible favourite sentences. There were so many wonderful bits in this chapter. No, well, what I'm having for mine is when John Dashwood says to her, you may guess after all these expenses how very far we are from being rich and how acceptable Mrs Ferris's kindness is. Eleanor replies, certainly, said Eleanor, and assisted by her liberality, I hope you may yet live to be in easy circumstances. (laughs) And I sort of thought when I read that, well, look, Lady Middleton criticises the Dashwood girls for being satirical, but I think she's getting pretty close to being satirical (laughs) when she says something like that. I think she says something like that to John because she knows he won't pick it up. He will take it at face value because he is so oblivious to everybody else. And because he sees everything at face value. Yeah, he doesn't understand irony, (laughs) not at all, or satire. Yes, the line about. Lady Middleton thinking the girls um, satirical because they read a lot. Yes. It's a lovely line, and particularly that she doesn't actually know what satirical means. <laughs> yes. But I sort of felt, well, look. Yeah. <laughs> but Eleanor doesn't do that really to anyone else. She only does it to John. She doesn't do it anywhere oh, to Robert Ferris? Maybe she does it to Lucy. And Lucy does actually get it, but she's intending Lucy to get it. Yes, she does it with Lucy quite a lot. Yes. Well, my favourite is actually a line I used for years and years below my email signature. It's after Robert Ferrers has been talking at Eleanor about cottages and who knows what. And it says, Eleanor agreed to it all for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. In these chapters, we are getting a sense of Eleanor feeling herself to be a little bit intellectually, morally, ethically superior to pretty much everyone she's dealing with in these chapters. Basically, though, to all the comic characters in the book. Yes. She feels she's either more intelligent than them. Well, actually, she feels mostly she's more intelligent than them. Yes. And morally superior. And and morally superior. But I think mostly she feels she's more intelligent than them. And to be fair, because they're all the comic characters, she probably is. And I think that probably includes Mrs Dashwood. I was just thinking, I don't think she ever is like that to Colonel Brandon. And I don't think she's ever like that to Willoughby. No. Then we have very little dialogue between her and Willoughby and not that much more dialogue between her and Colonel Brandon because we don't have much dialogue from (laughs) Colonel Brandon. Let's say all the interactions described by her and Willoughby, she's never having this sort of go at them. Mm. Now, even with Willoughby. The character we're going to talk about this time is Mrs Dashwood and it might seem odd to be talking about her now because she doesn't really appear in the chapters we've talked about this episode but that's because when I was looking over my notes I had down for us to talk about Mrs Ferrers this time and then I realised we hadn't talked about Mrs Dashwood at all so and I think it's more important to talk about her. Yes okay you know when I started thinking about it I thought well I don't know what my original impression of Mrs Dashwood was but I read talking about Jane Austen so early on in my reading of Jane Austen that I picked up their impression of Mrs Dashwood and they think of her as this absolutely charming woman and they even think that there has to be somebody who wants to come and marry Mrs Dashwood (laughs) because she's so lovely. And the other thing they say about her is they have a chapter where they talk about, among other things, who is the best mother in Jane Austen. And they say that she is the best mother. And let's be honest, there's not a lot of competition for that. So one of the things they 
they identify for her is she is always thinking about the well-being of her girls. Maybe she's not always wise, but as I think we said earlier, when they get invited to go to London, she's not all martyred about it. She's 100% behind, you must go to London. Yeah. And things like that. She She's not always wise, but she is very concerned about the well-being of her daughters, and she is still wiser than, say, Mrs Bennet. Well, again, of course, we've got that one problem to explain with Mrs Dashwood, is why did she leave Marianne in London when Marianne was obviously in such a terrible state? And there's no excuse. The plot required it. The plot required it, because if Marianne had gone, Eleanor would have gone, and all that lovely stuff we'd just been through wouldn't have happened. The reason given is that... She thinks it would be worse for Marianne to be back home and seeing all the places she was happy with Willoughby. And it's a stretch. It's a real stretch. But again, it is a stretch that is focused on what she thinks will make Marianne happy. So she's possibly well, wrong. <laughs> it seems a bit specious to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jane look, Austen had to come let, up with a reason. The whole point is, as we've said quite a lot of times with Sense and Sensibility, there are these little places where... For the sake of the plot, she makes characters do things that they really oughtn't Mm. to be doing. The other reason given to stay longer in London is because she knows that John and Fanny are coming to London and she thinks it's important that they should spend more time with their brother. So that's harking back to what I was saying earlier about the Helena Kelly thing. Just the emphasis this book is putting on family feeling and the importance of family and how many people kind of don't have that and how they're criticised for it. But it's just a small piece, but it does sort of suggest that... And maybe it's also because she did, after all, bring up John for some of his life. That's right, yes. I suppose the thought that just occurred to me when you were saying that is perhaps she's feeling a bit guilty that when she got so cross with Fanny that she picked up the girls and took them right away from their family. And now she's thinking, you know, perhaps I shouldn't have. Mm. That makes sense to me. They're not as a reason no. in the face of Marianne being no. in this terrible state. Mm. I just think it was something that Jane Austen... You the know, plot required it. That she wasn't skilful enough at this stage to twist the plot mm. to fit this. Yeah. Or she had this lovely plot and she wasn't going to get rid of it. But this time, when I started looking towards the end, I came up really quite bothered with the extent to which Mrs Dashwood does a Mrs Bennet and she shoves Marianne after she gets driven back to Cleveland where the farmers are. Colonel Brandon gets at her and so she arrives determined that Colonel Brandon should marry Marianne. He'll be just the person for her. When I reread that, my blood almost ran cold. She is going to push this girl. And right at the very end of the book, you have this passage where it says that after Eleanor is married, you have Mrs Dashwood and Eleanor and John. And Edward. And Edward. They wanted to see Marianne settled at the mansion house was equally the wish of Edward and Eleanor. They each felt his sorrows and their own obligations and Marianne, by general consent, was to be the reward of all. Basically, you've got the whole lot of them determined to push Marianne and right from the moment Colonel Brandon gets at her, Mrs Dashwood really thinks, and on what grounds? Mm. Perhaps she's thinking of her own older husband. But Well, I suppose... 
to be charitable, and maybe you don't want to be charitable, she probably does think Marianne has been so hurt by Willoughby. Yes. She's never going to love someone with that total commitment that Marianne has. And she knows Colonel Brandon is a good man. So it's not like Mrs. Bennet pushing Elizabeth to Mr. Collins. In this case, I think, rightly or wrongly, I think she genuinely believes that it is probably for Marianne's happiness. But yeah, you're right. The amount of pressure she's putting on Marianne is perhaps unconscionable. Yes. And then there's this other assumption. Oh, well, perhaps she believes what Marianne said, that you can only love once. Yeah. But there's Marianne. What, she's coming up 18. Do we really think that if she can feel so passionate about Willoughby, that she's not... I mean, Mm. one can think of plenty of people one knows who tend to fall for person after person, Mm. particularly starting at 18. Mm. Moving away from that, just reflecting back on some things we've said earlier, is the incurable optimism of Mrs Dashwood. Yeah. In that a woman who's never saved any money in her life thinks that she will be sufficiently beforehand in the spring to make yes. some alterations to the well, cottage. Well, of course, that's a phrase that they're talking about Jane Austen people, which I keep talking about them because I read them probably before I left school. So, you know, they influenced a lot of my thinking about yeah. Jane Austen. Well, I suppose i just sum up by saying, yes, I can see what you mean. Mrs Dashwood does, in fact, do badly by Marianne. Yes. And I don't think the author necessarily recognises that or wants us to recognise that. But in general, Mrs Dashwood is a nice person. She's happy, she's optimistic, she is subject to sudden changes in emotion. There's that really funny bit later in the book where she says there is always something I couldn't like about Willoughby. (laughs) Yes. And then there's the other thing that we talked about earlier is this very nice thing about her pride in that she's not going to try and crawl up the society she's with there. Mm. She's accept what Sir John Middleton offers, but she is not going to visit people. She's not going to go out to dinner parties unless she can return them. Yeah. Yeah, she'll only pay calls to places she can walk to rather than having to ask Sir John for the carriage. Yes. She can't be completely independent. She does have dependence on Sir John, but she is not... But again, in what we were saying about family obligations, he has obligations to her and she is grateful for them. Mm. But she makes that point that she won't go to dinner with him, but she lets her girls go. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. she won't accept hospitality that she can't repay. Yes. But she will let the girls accept that hospitality. And maybe it's because it's slightly different in that he's not actually head of the family. She is a poor relation. No, but he's her landlord. Yeah, true. And as her landlord, he again has traditional obligations Mm. to the people to whom he lets his property. Mm. Right, well, what I'm going to be talking about today is, in effect, the London background to Sense and Sensibility. The geographic background. The the topographical background of where they are. And so I knew bits of it, but I've been looking it up more. And I should say that I'm going to create a Google map of everything that gets talked about, and I'll link that in the show notes. Right. But anyway, when you actually look at a modern A to Z or you look on Google Maps you're going to find that almost all the action 
of the London section of Sense and Sensibility takes place in Marylebone and Mayfair and in the streets below what was to become Regent's Park. It was already being turned into a park, but since the Prince Regent didn't become Prince Regent <laughs> till 1811, it obviously is still the reins of a royal hunting ground. And it all happened before the Regent was getting Nash to create Regent Street. On the other hand, this was not a rural area at the time they moved there. In fact, it hadn't been a rural area for well over 50 years. It had begun being converted from country estates to London squares, you know, the square and the houses around it, and then the streets coming off it, in terraces with elegant-looking 18th-century houses. These streets had been converted to townhouses that people could rent for the season quite a long time ago, from the early 1700s on. And most of them, when you start looking back on who developed Portman Place, who developed Portman Square, who developed Cavendish Square, who did Harley Street, you come across the fact that they were developed mainly by aristocrats like the Duke of Newcastle, the Earls of Bath and the Earls of Scarborough and the Cavendish families. And I read somewhere that the reason you have these families from all over the country owning land on the outskirts of London is because these were families where the owners were interested in Parliament, in being in the House of Lords Mm -hmm. and being aristocrats. They didn't want to just be in a little house. They bought themselves country estates. And the country estates we're interested in are the ones that were born more or less as you're going west, you left the city of London behind and you've got Hoban and so on and then you've got what became Regent Street and now you've got all these squares being built there. Which were converted from the country estates. Well, the country estates were broken up and they built these squares and streets coming off them. And these were never actually sold necessarily by the families. They tended to own the actual property and either they put the money into developing it but they didn't sell these houses they let them on 99 year leases and they would then be bought by landlords either people like Mrs Jennings might have the lease or there might be a landlord who had the lease and let it to this family this year to that family the next year Mm -hmm. if we start looking at them Barclay Street which was the one near Portman Square. That was where Mrs Jennings lived. You could actually still see some of the houses if you look on on Google. Which is obviously, even if it's not the really posh part of town, that is definitely not the trade part of town. Oh, no, no, It's not like living in Gracechurch Street. No, 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 that is in the city, which is quite a way away. No, she's living in Marlebone, and below Marlebone is Mayfair, and below Mayfair is St James, mm-hmm. and St James is where the royal palace was uh-huh. and where, if people were going to be presented to the king, they went there. The furthest up towards Regent's Park is Harley Street, where John and Fanny Dashwood lived, and that is 0.8 miles away from Barclay Street, and it took 17 minutes to walk there.
Mm-hmm. If you're walking today. According to Google Maps. According to Google Maps, yes. Which I find is sometimes a bit generous in how long it says it's going to take to get somewhere. But if you're walking in a Regency dress, maybe not so much. Yes. Well, again, of course, Mrs Jennings tended to go everywhere in her carriage. Yeah. But definitely they walked to various places. Mm. But Mrs Jennings's children lived further down towards St James. The Middletons lived in Conduit Street, which was a full mile from Mrs Jennings in Barclay Street and it takes 22 minutes to walk. So when Mrs Jennings is off looking after the baby, the Dashwood girls, they have to go a mile every day to spend the day with the Middletons. Which is another reason why they might have been happier just staying where they were. Yes. Although having said that, coming from the country... Walking a mile is probably not really that big well, a deal th- to th- That's what they're doing, yeah. yes. They're used to doing it. Yeah. And then a little bit further up towards Regent's Park, but still in Mayfair, is where the Palmers lived in Hanover Square. And that was only 18 minutes from Mrs Jennings. So when she went off to see the baby every day... Even if she'd walked, it only took yeah. her 18 minutes. And she probably and went. it probably took more time to bring the carriage round than it did to actually get there. <laughs> Very likely, yes. And so Conduit Street and Hanover Square are both in Mayfair, but Barclay Street is on the other side of what's now Oxford Street. So it's in Malibane. And a bit sort of further east and up towards Regent Street is Harley Street, where... John and Fanny Dashwood stay, so they're quite a distance from the Middletons. But so so you've really got them in this little area, which is not much over a mile apart. And then going down through the middle of this is Bond Street, where they obviously go for their shopping. Yep. And where Willoughby is avoiding them, (laughs) Willoughby is, is ducking in and out of various shops because he has his lodgings there so he can more or less keep an eye on who's crossing Oxford Street and going up to them and where Mrs Jennings' carriage is coming. Whereas the poor little Steels are not living there. They're living in Hoban. They're with their cousins initially, aren't they? Their cousins in Hoban, which is right the other side of what was to become Regent Street and over there in a much more commercial area. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole two miles from where Mrs Jennings is living Mm -hmm. and it would take 42 minutes to walk. Which again, thinking about it, probably they wouldn't think all that much in the country of hiking two miles. But in town may be different. Yeah, well, later on when the steels are tossed out of Harley Street, they're very obliged to the Dashwoods for taking them in their carriage Mm. back. But they were definitely... They're on the other side of where all this development is going on around Regent Street. Mm -hmm. But once they go off shopping, though, they tend to be coming further down towards St James's. So when they go down to Sackville Street and see Robert Ferris and run into John Dashwood... So that's when they're going to graze? Where they're going to graze the jewellers. That is quite a lot further down towards Piccadilly, down towards St James. And that is, in fact, 26 minutes away from where Mrs Jennings lives. But it wouldn't be all that far, having found John there. Going up to Conduit Street is not so much further up. So that's why it's fairly easy, I think, for Eleanor to walk with John. 
And then, if you come even further down, we come to the haunts of Colonel Brandon, where he lodges in St James's Street. But he obviously spends a bit of time down in Pall Mall, and Pall Mall is towards St James's, and it was a shopping street, and we know that because he was in a shop there. The stationers, wasn't it? I think so, and that's where he just coincidentally hears two people gossiping about someone else who he happens to know. <laughs> yes, about Willoughby getting married, yes. isn't it? Yeah. I think I talked last time about how amazing it is that in this big city of London, the gossip is so localised. But from what you're saying, it's localised because... The area they're in really isn't that much larger than a village. No, and the main places they'd go shopping. They'll be shopping in Bond Street. They're shopping down in Pall Mall. Mm. And also, Pall Mall was just beginning to turn into the place where all the gentlemen's clubs were, Mm. which is again why Colonel Brandon may be hanging out down there. Mm -hmm. And then when Edward gets tossed out of Mrs Ferrer's house. He comes down there too and takes lodgings in Pall Mall. They're mostly there in this period after Christmas. This is the season. It's a period when Parliament is in session, when lots of plays are on, lots of exhibitions are on. There's Mm. lots to be able to do in London. Including taking little Harry to see the wild animals? At... The exchange, yes. Yes. There was a note about that in my Cambridge footnotes. Oh, right. What did they say? He was wanting to see the wild beasts at Exeter Exchange, which, according to these footnotes, was an ageing and inelegant collection of shops in the Strand, across from the Savoy Chapel, featuring upstairs a menagerie with lions and tigers. A frivolous visit when set against unmet family obligations but also comically contradictory to John and Fanny's eager desire for fashionable distinction. Yes, well, that's quite a long way away. They would have had to go by carriage because that's on the Strand, which is a fair whack of a way from where they are and, again, a lot further east. Mm. But the other thing, though, what you can say, is they visit in the same sort of little circles they know in the country. Mm. These are the people they know, they visit people they know, they meet other people there, then they call on them. But, you know, what you notice here is they don't even go to any big balls, they don't go to standard things like Almax or Almax, however you'd say it, Mm. and possibly it was too expensive for them, possibly they didn't know the people that gave you an in to it. Mm. So we just see them leading this very sociable life. I mean, you know, they do nothing except go shopping and visit one another Mm. and have musical evenings and Mm. so on. So we saw when we were talking about the chapters just how many little scenes, all of them wonderful in their own ways, there are in these five chapters. Well, of course, the adaptations of the book can't fit all of that in. The three television miniseries all have the same three scenes. The 1995 movie with Emma Thompson, that's because it's working on a more compressed time frame, just has one scene. One thing you may remember I said last time is that all of them introduce Robert Ferrers at the ball where Willoughby cuts Marianne. So that immediately completely excises the scene at Grey's with the toothpick case. Yes. It's a bit of a shame, but it's not there. It would have been fairly hard to yes. fit that in. Yeah. They would have had to establish the shop, establish what the man would have looked like, hire a whole lot of toothpick cases. <laughs> yeah. 
So the three scenes that the television versions all have is they all have the John and Eleanor scene. That's not in the 1995 movie. They all have the dinner yes. at the Ferris's. Is that the dinner where they talk about the size of the children? Yes. <laughs> and then all of them, including the 1995 version, of course have the key scene with Eleanor, Lucy, Edward and Marianne. Yes. Yes. They all have that no matter what. The most recent miniseries version, the 2008 version with Hattie Morrohan and Charity Wakefield, it actually introduces a couple of extra scenes that aren't in the book. Again, this is, I think, symbolic of Andrew Davis, who wrote the screenplay. When he wrote the screenplay for Pride and Prejudice, while he certainly took liberties and changed things, he kept quite closely to Jane Austen's dialogue and what Jane Austen shows us. By the time he's come to writing this one, I feel he's become a lot more willing to move right away from Jane Austen, have his own dialogue, have his own scenes. So this 2008 version introduces a couple of extra scenes. One of them is one of John, Fanny and Robert at dinner where they're talking about Marianne and Willoughby and actually has a line I feel is quite jarring where it says, Marianne will be considered damaged goods and perhaps she is, which I don't like that subtext. That comes from Fanny. Then there's also a scene with Colonel Brandon visiting Eliza and the baby, also not in the book. They felt that was important just to really bring it home, the damage Willoughby has caused. And it's quite sad because you have Eliza saying maybe if he comes to see the child and Brandon has to tell her Willoughby has just announced his engagement. So yes. you see this other poor girl yes. and the fact that she also... Well, yes, that she's been she's, discarded too. Yeah, yeah. But they all have the John and Eleanor scene. They all have some dialogue from the book and it's always funny with that John obliviousness and Eleanor being quietly cutting at times. All of them, again, except 1995, have some version of the dinner with John, Fanny and Mrs. Ferrers. Yes. So you get to see Mrs. Ferrers being incredibly rude to Eleanor. You have the scene with the fire screens... Mm. Although in the most recent version, it's actually a painting of Norland, not a fire screen. And you have Marianne in the 1971 version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden. And this has been typical of the 1971 version. Marianne is very over the top and practically has hysterics in the bit where she starts crying. And Mm. Marianne feels like she's being very stagey rather than being very genuine. That's not as extreme in the 1981 version where Marianne's played by Tracy Childs. I don't think it even has the crying. It does have a scene with Robert telling Lucy about buying a toothpick case. Oh, right. (laughs) It also has the discussion about the height of the boys, which none of the others have. Of course, even the discussion of the height of the boys, there's no actual dialogue for that. It's just Jane Austen's sort of rather tart description of what they were saying. (laughs) Yes. And then in the most recent 2008 version you do have Marianne starting to cry but it's not as stagey feeling as it did in the 1981 version it does feel well, that she's probably not not making a noise not yeah. getting out a handkerchief yeah. not that sort yeah. of thing but of course the key one that all of them have even the 1995 version is the scene between Eleanor Lucy Edward and Marianne I should add the 1995 version Mrs Ferrers is another character they cut completely yes. so which I actually think kind of works she holds so much power but you never see yes. her yes so she's out there sort of weaving her spells yes. but you don't see yes. her yes so again just looking at how they all do this scene the 1971 version again it feels quite stagey and 
It is one where Lucy actually says to Edward, you may talk quite freely, and she takes his hand. So she's just letting him know that Eleanor knows and they've ignored that side of the book. Edward in this one, I think I've mentioned before, he, he sometimes has a stammer and is very pronounced in this scene to indicate his complete awkwardness. Then in the 1981 version with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, it feels less stagey, it feels a bit more believable, more organic. In the conversation with Lucy, Eleanor gets a couple of digs in, like, I have certainly learned much from our acquaintance. (laughs) (laughs) This one adds a scene of Edward and Lucy alone. Instead of leaving the room with Eleanor, you stay in the room and see them with Lucy saying that she sees him so rarely and his letters are so short. Then she brings Marianne in. Again, it's it's not as over the top as the Marianne in the earlier one, but still Marianne feels a bit stagey and... It's quite sad that when Edward leaves, Eleanor says goodbye, Edward, and it does feel quite final. Oh, right, Um, yes. But my favourite is from the 1995 version. There are two reasons for this. One is I think Ang Lee, as the director, really managed to get all the undertones there without needing to make anything so over-the-top and stagey and constructed. But also I think Kate Winslet's performance of Marianne in this scene just absolutely nails it she is so loving she is so enthusiastic she is so completely oblivious to everything (laughs) everyone else is feeling in the room it just works so beautifully yeah the 2008 version this is one of the bits where i feel the scene works quite well but just it suffers through comparison to the 1995 version yes i think the edward in this scene carries off the awkwardness quite well Marianne is enthusiastic she just she's not as good as Kate Winslet was but yeah. again it's done quite nicely in this one but for me the the high point is the 1995 version of this scene and I think we're going to see this again next time when I talk about the scene just between Edward and Eleanor about handing over the living I can't remember how the others do it but I do know that it was one that really struck me very strongly in the 1995 version these scenes don't really turn up in most of the other modernisation films. There's kind of no equivalent in the Bollywood film or for Prada, Tanada or anything like that. These ones do or don't show the sort of fencing between Lucy and Eleanor. They don't have that because the Lucy character is not usually as well brought out. It's sometimes almost completely off screen. Yes. In From Prada, Tanada, I don't think Eleanor even meets Lucy except quite briefly. And in the Bollywood version... The Lucy character is, well, I'm going to talk about this probably more next time, but it's quite different in that the Lucy threat really isn't any kind of a threat and not someone she sees. So the only other one I wanted to talk about briefly with the pop culture versions is the Joanna Trollope version. And one thing I might say, and I'm inspired to say this just because yesterday I went to a Jane Austen Society of Australia meeting where someone was talking about book adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. And I realised with a horrific sense of guilt that all of the book adaptations I have talked about, both for this and for Pride and Prejudice, have been very white modernisations, whereas there have been many, many modernisations of these books that put them in completely different cultures. There have been adaptations that have used black American culture. There have been several adaptations that have drawn on Pakistani Muslim culture. And I feel very guilty that I haven't read these and haven't talked about them. But the problem is there have been so many book modernizations of this, many of them fan fiction, some of them not fan fiction, some of them by high-profile authors. But because there's so much, I have really only concentrated on the ones 
typically by high profile authors or that I've come across for one reason or another. I am going to try to consciously make an effort to look more at non-white adaptations because I feel I've been very remiss in that area. Having said that, this was only yesterday. I haven't had time to do that for Sense and Sensibility yet. So the only one I'm going to talk about very briefly is the Joanna Trollope modernization. And it, of course, as I've said before, is very much aligning point for point with the book. So it does pick up more of the scenes. It has the scene of them talking about the height of the boys, though it has it quite nicely because it has Eleanor actually talking to little Harry. Little Harry doesn't care at all. (laughs) It's only his mother and grandmother who get offended. But another thing is it has Robert Ferrers organising a party for someone in her flat and manages to fit everything in by taking some stuff out on the balcony and everything, which obviously matches to the giving the ball in a cottage. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I've got to say about the pop culture versions for these chapters. We've had a comment from Bethany since we recorded the last episode who sent me a message saying that... She's noticed a couple of times I talked about the fact that Mrs. Elton uses Knightley's surname and and the fact that I was saying it's obviously very vulgar by then to refer to someone by their surname only. And she wonders about my interpretation and whether the vulgarity was not the use of the surname but the fact that it is just an overly familiar way to refer to someone when you haven't known them very long. So I just wanted to clarify that, yes, I think the big criticism of Mrs. Elton is that she's being overly familiar when she's only met Knightley once at that point. But what fascinates me about it is the fact that in Pride and Prejudice and in Sense and Sensibility, women quite routinely refer to men by their surname. You know, men who they know quite well, who they've met more than once. Whereas in the later books, that just doesn't happen. You have men referring to men by their surname, but as far as I can remember, the only occasion in those later books of a woman referring to a man by his surname is Mrs. Elton saying nightly. In all other cases, if they know someone well and they're very familiar, they use their Christian name, and if they don't know them very well, then it's always Mr. So-and-so or Captain So-and-so. So I guess, and I could be completely wrong about this, but it's just my sense that there must have been some sort of social change in between those early books and the later ones in terms of how women refer to men with whom they are familiar. And by having Mrs. Elton use that in this later book, it is a sign of her vulgarity in a way it's not a sign of the vulgarity of, say, Jane talking about Bingley or the Dashwoods talking about Willoughby. Something I'd just like to add there is that the picture I think we get is that Mrs. Elton was copying Mr. Elton, that Mr. Elton had talked to her about Knightley, Mm. as Knightley, Mm. and she's picked that up. She's picked up a male usage Mm. and is throwing it around in this female company. Mm. Because there'd be no issue with Mr. Elton calling him Knightley. He probably does. Well, yes, they... Because A, they're reasonably familiar, and B, that is standard terminology. Whereas Mrs. Elton, I think, is my feeling, and I could be wrong, is that she is giving a double vulgarity here. First, she is using a familiar form of address when she's not familiar with him yet, and secondly, she's using a form of address that is not appropriate for a woman, no matter how familiar with a man, to use. Yes.
You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 37 to 41 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.